Luke 11, 20, 26, and we're going to be talking about Christ driving out of Satan, and a very crucial, important part of Scripture here. And I'll begin reading at verse 20. <clears throat> but if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will turn to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Thus endeth the reading of God's holy word. We're going to consider the first part of that. I didn't finish what I wanted to cover. <coughs> In Luke chapter 11, we have a confrontation between Jesus and his enemies over our Lord's ability to cast out demons. The Jewish teachers and political leaders could not admit that Jesus had authority and power over demons. They just couldn't admit that. For if they did, they would have had to recognize his unique person. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. And they would have had to recognize it, that his teachings about himself, salvation, and the kingdom of God were absolutely true. So they're not going to recognize this obvious sign that he is who he says he is. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. They couldn't admit that. So the context, they attribute his works to Beelzebub or Satan. And if you read the Talmud, to the Jews, the Orthodox Jews to this very day, Regard in, in the Talmud says Jesus was a magician who performed the works of Satan. His miracles, his casting out of demons, according to the Jews, according to the Talmud, according to Pharisaical Judaism, according to modern Judaism, was all a work of the devil. Otherwise, they'd have to admit he was who he says he was. Consequently, they attributed his ability to cast out demons to the power of Satan or Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. The Jews ignored the biblical significance of our Lord's continued performance of sign gifts, miracles, casting out of demons, even power to raise people from the dead. They ignored that. The power over nature itself. He, had, he did the miracles of nature. Which, according to their own scriptures, proved that he was sent by God and that his message was absolutely true. Now remember, <clears throat> the purpose of miracles, if you study the Old Testament, and you study the New Testament, you carefully look at Scripture, the purpose of miracles is not so people can have healing meetings and raise a lot of money and get rich and drive around and fly around in their jet aircraft. The purpose of miracles was to authenticate the teaching of the Word of God, to authenticate someone as a true prophet, and they, if you look at miracles, they occur, of course, around the coming of new revelation and redemptive history. Jesus, the humble teacher from Galilee, who was the master over nature itself, Luke 8, 22 to 25, all disease and even death, Luke 8, 40 to 56, was also the master over the demons and even Satan. The enemies of our Lord could not refute his claims theologically, biblically, or by the facts, so they relied on lies and slander. Jesus was born of a virgin. What do they accuse him of being? A bastard. It's right in the Gospels. Jesus did miracles left, right, and center all over the place. Oh, he does it by the power of Satan. 
Those who ignore and reject the truth must rely on lies and propaganda. They resort to ad hominem attacks that are absurd, irrational, and totally contrary to the facts, staring them in the face. They had every reason to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He fulfilled the prophecies absolutely perfectly. Not one or two prophecies, many prophecies. He had the attestation of the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. And of course, he had the sign gifts. Our Lord's response is very interesting and deserves a careful analysis. He points out the absurdity he first points out the absurdity of Satan attacking and destroying his own kingdom. Why would the devil liberate those under his control and set them free of his dominion or power? To be under demon possession is to be under the power of Satan or his minions. That's something that Satan greatly desires. He loves to have people under his absolute control. Why in the world would he set them free of that? Why would he liberate them? Such thinking makes no sense at all. Then second, our Lord in verse 20 and following speaks about the significance of his power over the demonic hosts. He sets forth crucial Christological teachings and eschatological principles. This proves that these are occurring by the finger of God. We are informed of Jesus' greatness. He is the one far more mighty than John the Baptist, Luke 3.16, of whom John spoke. In other words, Jesus is someone far greater than all the great prophets combined. Do we see the prophets walking around, doing miracles at will, and casting out demons? And the answer is no. He is stronger than Satan himself. He is the all-powerful son of the living God. He is the most powerful of... Uh, he can bind Satan, who is the most powerful of all demonic beings. beings Luke 11.22 and C4.1-13. His destruction of Satan's kingdom <coughs> proves that the kingdom of God, the special kingdom of grace that Christ establishes by his sacrificial death and glorious resurrection, has come to earth by the Messiah's presence and ministry. The kingdom has come. It is established with power due to the atoning death of Christ and his glorious resurrection. The Great Commission, and of course, uh, I think it's Romans 1, 4. And it progressively grows in time between the first coming of Christ and the second advent. But its full realization only comes at the end of history when Jesus returns and judges the world. So with Christ on earth, the incarnation, the kingdom is present. But it doesn't come with power until the resurrection. And that's when Jesus will sit at the right hand of God and he will judge the Jews and crush Israel and then he will judge the Roman Empire. Now the focus of the study, that's the context, the focus of the study will be on Christ's power over and defeat of Satan, verses 21 to 22, our Lord's complete rejection of religious neutrality, verse 23, and that's all we're going to get to today, and then Lord willing, next week, the result of only a half-hearted or supervisual commitment to Jesus in biblical Christianity, verses 24 to 26, where Jesus talks about um, the person being clean and swept and then seven other more evil spirits come and possess him. The need of genuine conversion, the need of a society maintaining its biblical witness, its Christian witness, otherwise it'll become far worse than it was before. And Lord willing, we'll look at that next week. So let's look at the stronger one. In verses 21 to 22, Jesus illustrates the significance of his power over demons with the story of the strong man. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoils. 
In this verse, we have a description of Satan as well as his power and position in this fallen world. Satan is powerful. And yes, Satan is a real being. One thing Satan loves is when people deny that he exists. We also have a description of our Lord as well as, as his power and defeat of Satan. For ratification, let us examine the details of this teaching first. Note the description of Satan. He is described as a strong man who is fully armed. Satan was created as the greatest and most powerful of all the angelic beings. When he fell into sin and rebellion against God, a third of the angels followed him into rebellion. And they supported his plan of an evil empire or kingdom in opposition to God. His kingdom rests upon a rejection of God's authority. God wants me to do this. I'm not going to do what God wants me to do. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to follow my own autonomy. I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care what God says. That's the satanic philosophy. His kingdom rests upon a rejection of God's authority. He can only support his kingdom through lies, violence, and wickedness. He was a liar from the beginning, John 8.44, and the father of lies, and a murderer, John 8.44. His kingdom on earth came by, by tempting and deceiving Eve, who in turn convinced Adam, her husband, to sin. He had to use deception, lies, to get Eve to follow his will. By bringing sin and rebellion into the world against God, he has led, of course, the whole, all humanity has fallen except Christ, and he has led the vast majority of mankind into his kingdom of lies and evil against God, except for those who are of grace, obviously. Instead of faith in God and a loving submission to God's will, Satan seeks complete rejection and autonomy from God. Due to original and actual sins, men are under God's condemnation and are covenantally in league with the devil's kingdom. And that's extremely obvious in our day. In the past, you'd have pagans, but they were strongly influenced by the Christian world and life view. And so they didn't promote things that were completely outrageous and absolutely evil. Like the transgender movement, which is... Uh, advocates the genital mutilation of children or homosexuality which is totally unnatural and disgusting and homosexual marriage which is an abomination etc 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 things the more that people are consistent with their human autonomy the more obviously evil they are and absurd it is for this reason that he is called the prince or ruler of this world John 12, 31, and 1 Corinthians 2, 6, and 8. The prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2, 2. He rules over the demons, and the demons travel around our atmosphere. Obviously, they're unseen. They're in another dimension. They're spiritual beings, and they do their work. And the covenantal father of all unbelievers, or those in opposition to God, John 8, 44. Jesus looked at his enemies, the Pharisees, right in the face and told them, you are of your father, the devil. And his works you seek to do. You do what he wants, not what God wants. Now the devil is very strong and has great power over mankind because men have bought into Satan's worldview or concept of the kingdom. Instead of looking to God and following his divine revelation, that is being receptively reconstructive, studying the Bible, seeing what God tells us to do and obeying it, that's what God wants. We don't act autonomously. We reject human autonomy. We bow the knee to Christ. We bow the knee to God. We submit to the word of God. Instead of that, Satan teaches men to think and act autonomously. He says, don't believe God. 
Don't believe in the Bible. Don't believe what the Bible says. Don't believe any of that. It's nonsense. And don't follow God, but rather do your own thing. Follow your own lusts. Do not deny yourself anything you want. And if you, if you look at the modern Satanists, 20th century Satanists, Anton LaVey, and of course Aleister Crowley, Aleister Crowley's his, uh, main explanation in simple terms of his philosophy is do what thou wilt. Do whatever you want. Whatever turns you on. And they practice bestiality, homosexuality, you name it. Drugs, heroin, everything. Do what you want. You're God. You can call the shots. God isn't God, you're God. The path to happiness and dominion and glory, according to Satan, <clears throat> is through human autonomy. Remember the temptation in the garden? Eve, come on, Eve. Did God really say that? That's ridiculous. Look at the tree. Look how beautiful the fruit is. God is denying you self-fulfillment. God is denying you happiness. Why submit to God and be patient and wait for blessings from God? Grab it by your own hands. Take it. Do what you want. That's the path to happiness and blessing. It's through disobedience to God. It's through your own doing your own thing. And then you'll determine for yourself, you and Adam, you guys will determine for yourselves what is good and evil. You get to determine your own ethics. You get to choose your own path. You determine your own reality. Don't listen to this God stuff. That's ridiculous. Follow me. That's Satan's philosophy. <clears throat> Truly the devil is very strong and possesses many weapons. His chief weapon is the lie. It was by deception and lies that he corrupted Adam and Eve. And it is by continued lies of which he is the creator and user that he clings tightly to his hold over fallen humanity. He continually works to destroy the souls of men. All the arguments for atheism, agnosticism, skepticism, false religions, and the service of sin originate with him. To the real Christian, if you know your Bible, if you study your Bible, you submit to the Word of God, his, his lies appear ridiculous, absurd, stupid, insane. But to the unregenerate, they are tasty morsels used to justify the service of sin. Why do you think the hippies like Hinduism and Eastern mysticism so much? Why was it the big deal? And of course, God used the Beatles to spread that lie. I mean, excuse me, Satan did. Satan used the Beatles to spread that lie. <clears throat> and sadly, tragically, George Harrison believed that lie to the day he died and had his ashes spread over the Ganges, which is full of human excrement, which is appropriate because God, uh, Satan is the Lord of the flies. He's the Lord of excrement. People love sin. The hippies look to Hinduism because there is no doctrine of hell. There is no doctrine of an absolute personal God who judges sin, who hates evil, who is absolutely holy. Instead, everything is God. And you're just going to reincarnate back until you merge back with the Godhead. So if you want to take drugs and you want to fornicate like a wild beast, go ahead. That's why it was so popular. Because it's, it's essentially a sophisticated, spiritual-sounding way of doing your own thing. And Timothy Leary, in conjunction with Baba Ram Dass, uh, that's, his, that's his Hindu name, wrote a book on drug mysticism based on the uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead. And the principles of meditation and Hinduism and that form of Buddhism, which is really... There's different forms of Buddhism. One is very atheistic. This one is much more like Hinduism. Uh, Eastern mysticism and the drug culture fit perfectly together because they both deny Christ. They both deny the true meaning of the God, the triune God who exists apart from man, apart from creation. So it fit perfectly. 
and thus Satan has complete control. And those hippies that were out there smoking pot and fornicating like wild animals now control our civil government. Unfortunately. Satan has great power because he controls the hearts of fallen, unbelieving men. Satan knows exactly what the fallen human heart desires. And he caters to those desires. Satan's armor is the loyalty of unbelievers to his cause. Now, I just was in California. I had to speak at a funeral. And uh, you go to the beach in California and you see all these young people. And they're not having children anymore, but they do have dogs. They have pets. They live for self. They, their stomach is their God. They live to go out to eat and to party and have fun. That's their whole life. Hedonism. No thought of God. No thanks for the food. No thanksgiving. No Sabbath keeping. Everything is for self. The demons and anti-Christian humans jump to his defense and support him because they are in full agreement with the satanic philosophy. He knows how every ethnic group, rank, class, and false religion can be twisted and manipulated with the most advantage. As the Christian seeks a more consistent, habitual obedience to God's law, the pagan who is a Satanist seeks a more consistent, habitual, and dedicated service to human autonomy and sin. You say, well, why is it that Europe and America and Canada and Australia and all these countries, Russia, what, they're not even reproducing themselves. Because if you don't believe in God, if you're a, basically a, a follower of Satan, you live for pleasure. That's all you care about. And children are a lot of work. Christians have children for the sake of dominion, to raise up a godly seed for the future. Because we, unfortunately, our lives are very short. So you want to leave Christians behind who can carry on that work. But unbelievers, they live for self. The true Christian becomes more and more like Christ over time, while a pagan society becomes more and more satanic and degenerate over time. Just look at Europe and the United States. Our country's gone completely mad. Second, Satan's kingdom or place of dominion, whether the human heart or a pagan society, is compared to a palace. <clears throat> Some Greek scholars think it means a courtyard, but generally a palace is fine. The meaning is the same. He's got a mansion full of goods. And Christ is going to conquer the devil and he's going to take over that mansion. The devil is like a mighty warlord or mafia boss who through lies, deceit, and moral corruption has taken possession of most of mankind. Only Christians, only people who follow the Bible are not under Satan's power. Only tiny Israel at that time had the true religion out of the whole world. And only a small minority in Israel really possessed genuine faith in God. Remember Elijah? God, only I, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one following you. And God says, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Out of over a million people. 7,000. The unregenerate heart is the natural abode of the evil one. He is in control of spiritually dead hearts. The devil is the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, Paul says in Ephesians 2.2. 2. People walk according to the principles of Satan, for their philosophy of life is in accord with his philosophy. You say to yourself, why does Biden and the Democratic Party just virtually almost everything they say is a lie? They just lie nonstop. Everything they say is a lie. And why do people choose to believe those lies? Because they follow Satan and that's their philosophy. They are sons of disobedience because like the devil they are disobedient to God. Satan and his evil spirits and unbelieving men work in unbelieving men, and influence their thinking, opinions, and conduct.
I think Satan laughs at transgendered movement and homosexual marriage. I think he thinks it's great because it's so unnatural and perverted and disgusting. He just laughs. Satan, by means of his demons and evil humans, is busily engaged in the hearts and lives of unbelievers. The disobedience and slavery to Satan flows from unbelief. It is rebellion against Yahweh, the true God. You can go on YouTube. There's dozens of people that are dedicated to promoting atheism and unbelief. And they're fools. And they're, some of them sound very intellectual. And they're imbeciles. The devil is very active and dedicated to hanging on and expanding his kingdom, his palace. He works energetically to make that which is already bad even worse. He never rests, for his mission of deception and evil is necessary for his position of authority. The kingdom of Christ and God is totally dependent on the truth. Everything about it is absolutely true. The truth and light, the spreading of truth, the spreading of real justice. Well, Satan's kingdom is the exact opposite. It's totally based on lies, and it's based on injustice. Here's what Matthew Henry writes, and it's wonderful. The heart of every unconverted sinner is the devil's palace, where he resides and he rules. He works in the children of disobedience. The heart is a palace, a noble dwelling. But the unsanctified heart is the devil's palace. His will is obeyed. His interests are served. And his militia is in his hands. All the prejudice, prejudices with which he hardens men's hearts against truth and holiness are the strongholds which he erects for the keeping of his palace. This palace is his garrison. And Lord willing, if we look at it next week, when a society shifts to a post-Christian society, when a society is predominantly Christian in its worldview and outlook, and rejects that for atheism, secular humanism, atheistic naturalism, whatever you want to call it, and goes down that path of rank human autonomy where men simply make up their own ethics and say that disgusting perverted sexual acts are wonderful and we should have parades praising it. Uh, that's all part of Satan's plan. And he's laughing. But Christ defeated Satan at the cross definitively. Without the coming of Christ, the establishment of the kingdom of grace, Satan's kingdom would have remained undisturbed. Note Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. What a terrifying thought. thought. <clears throat> and I was just out in California, and I spent a lot, you know, I, I was with my relatives and spent time around unbelievers, totally blind, totally blind, standing over the precipice of hell, only a heartbeat away from the lake, from burning in hell, totally blind. The devil is the god of this age only because men adhere to his philosophy and thus, in a sense, worship him. The dreadful consequence, then, of unbelief, of bowing down to the God of this age instead of the only true God, is that the mind is blinded. Blinded. And I'll never forget, I witnessed, I was out several years ago, I was in California, witnessing to a, a guy who was my best friend back when I was a pothead, back in the 70s. And I witnessed to him, and he just totally mocked the gospel. He just laughed at it. He just thought it was the stupidest thing in the world. Well, guess what, folks? He died of cancer. He's dead. He's dead. His chance is over.
This effect is attributed to Satan as the initiator of sin and therefore of its consequences. Because of sin, men are spiritually blind and have an innate hatred of God and the truth of the gospel. This tragic spiritual fact is why Satan's armor appears so strong. People are born with a natural hatred of the gospel because of sin. People are born with an axe to grind against God. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The creation of God around us proves the true God exists and proves his attributes. It's crystal clear. But to the unregenerate, they hang on to evolution, which is the most ridiculous, absurd thing. It's like creation, but there's no God. The universe created itself. It's, it's absurd. Now, Jesus speaks of Satan's goods or possessions being at peace before his coming. Before the death and resurrection of Christ, the whole world was under the power of the devil. Satan, during the temptation, took Jesus up on a high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of this world, and showed him their glory and their riches and power. And he offered them to Jesus as if, if, if Jesus would bow down to him and accept his authority. Luke 4, 5 to 6. As long as men are dead in trespasses and sins, their hearts belong to the devil. The devil sits upon the throne that only God and Christ should occupy. Consequently, men govern, them, govern themselves as covenantal children of Satan. They are faithful to Satan's cause, and Satan's kingdom is at peace. The devil is powerful. And he guards all of his possessions. All that he has robbed, perverted, and violated, and placed as trophies in his palace, will remain in peace. Undisturbed, as long as someone stronger does not come to overpower him and crush him. Satan and evil cannot be appeased, rehabilitated, or compromised with. He simply must be defeated. He must be defeated. You can't compromise with evil. And those people who think that you can, we can make a deal, like Trump, oh, we'll make a deal with Putin, I'll end the war in one day, that's foolish nonsense. It's foolishness. The only way to stop people like that is to put a bullet in their head and send them to hell where they belong. Well, let's look now at the stronger man comes. The second part of our Lord's illustration concerns the coming of the stronger one, who will overpower and defeat the devil. Verse 22. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor, in which he trusted and divides his spoils. And there are a number of crucial teachings in this verse. First, and this is very obvious, the stronger one who comes is Jesus himself. His strength over Satan is seen in a number of biblical teachings. Number one, he is both God and man in one person. And thus in his person he has infinite power and authority. Jesus is not an ordinary prophet. The demons cower in fear in his presence and they beg him, don't send us into the pit before the time. Cast us into those swine over there, we beg you. They understood his authority. They didn't cower in fear before Isaiah or Jeremiah, but in the presence of Christ, they know they're in the presence of God, a very God, and they fear his power. They know it. The wind and the seas obey him, and he has power over all disease, deformities, and even death. Our Lord is answering those who claim that Jesus was a magician who used satanic powers to cast out demons. <clears throat> After he points out that it would be totally absurd for Satan to attack and destroy his own forces, he says plainly that his work is the finger of God. Christ's ministry is God's ministry. Christ's work is the establishment and spread of God's royal dominion. Yes, it has to be salvific because of the fall. 
Yahweh's divine sovereignty is revealing itself in acts of power and mercy. Jesus has been sent by God and is the Son of God. Our Lord's use of the word finger indicates that he has extraordinary, infinite power. He merely speaks the word and the demons flee before him. A motion of a finger casts out the evil spirits like something flicking a gnat off his knee. To Christ they're nothing. Matthew's account, 1228, has spirit of God instead of finger of God. Pointing to the fact that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure at his baptism. And what does the word Messiah mean? It means the anointed one. He's not like a regular prophet. Yes, the prophets have the anointing of the Spirit. Yes, all true preachers have the anointing of the Spirit. All Christians are baptized with the Spirit. But he was anointed beyond measure with the Spirit. He is the Messiah, the anointed one. Although our Lord was fully God, God of very God, in his state of humiliation, his divine power was deliberately hidden from the people. And most of his miracles were done by the power of the Holy Spirit that baptized his human nature. Now, there were times when apparently his own power, remember the woman, if I, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. She'd been sick for, what, 20 years or something? She had an issue of blood. And power went out from Christ and healed her that very moment. Number two. As a divine human mediator, Jesus came to redeem his people, the elect, the church, his sheep, Satan has a kingdom and a vast army of human slaves only because of sin and rebellion against God. Yes, Biden, Nancy Pelosi, the Vice President, the Supreme Court, our con most of our Congress, they're slaves to Satan. That's, who, that's who's running our country. The only way for men to be set free of the devil was for Christ to pay the full penalty for sin in other people's place. Christ had to achieve a judicial victory it had to be salvific. Hebrews 2, 14-15 Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, God is infinite and all-powerful. God could have crushed Satan in a split second if he wanted to. The very moment Satan fell, he could have done that. But because of his love for a people throughout the whole world, John 3.16, he sent his only begotten Son into the world to conquer Satan's sin and death by the bloody cross and the empty tomb. It was necessary. The, cro the cross of Christ is not some thing to show off. It's not something just to, for, for the sake of dr drama. It had to be done. This required the incarnation of the Son of God, who assumed a real human nature, yet without original sin. The whole purpose of the incarnation was for Jesus to die a sacrificial death on the cross. As truly a man, yet without sin, Christ was able to suffer and die as a vicarious sacrifice. He endured the curse in the place of his people. He died in the place of his people. He suffered in the place of his people. He endured the pains of hell in the place of his people. This is the only way that man could be justified before God and thus delivered from the curse and from Satan. At the cross the place of blood sacrifice unto death, the decisive encounter between God and Satan occurred. The Son came into the world precisely for this purpose, that through Jesus death might be rendered, uh, render our enemy, the devil, totally ineffective. And what's, what, what did God say to the devil after the fall? He promised a coming Redeemer. And he said, you're going to hurt his heel, but he's going to crush your head. That's the promise that runs throughout the whole Bible. The promise of the coming of Christ. Yes, Satan, Christ will suffer grievously, but Satan will be totally defeated. Through Christ's suffering, the head of the serpent is crushed. The spectacle of the cross is not that some man died for other men, 
But that the incarnate Son of the living God, who is perfectly pure, innocent, and guiltless, was tried in an unjust, wicked court, condemned to die as a common criminal, tortured and suffered unto death in the place of unworthy, guilty sinners. Christ's vicarious death was the only way that guilt could be removed, and the removal of guilt, as well as reconciliation with God, is the only way to be freed from Satan's kingdom and dominion. There's a judicial foundation to our liberty, and that judicial foundation, that justification was achieved solely by Christ and is grasped, grasped solely by faith. We have been adopted into God's own family. We have been purchased by the precious blood of Christ. We are not our own. We belong to Christ now. We have liberty. We're, we're in, we live in the truth. We have the truth. We have freedom. I love Calvin's comments here. They're helpful. Our most merciful God, when he willed that we be redeemed, made himself our redeemer in the person of his only begotten son. This is our acquittal. The guilt that held us liable for punishment has been transferred to the head of the Son of God. We must, above all, remember the substitution, lest we tremble and remain anxious throughout life. End of quote. That's from the Institutes. <clears throat> Every day, the devil's going to tell you that you're a rotten sinner and you're not going to heaven and you're a fake Christian and give it up. You might as well go out and serve the world and go out and snort some coke and do whatever. He's going to tell you that every day. And every day you look to Christ and say, well, I'm not saved because I'm good. I'm saved because Christ is perfect and he died for me. Because of this precious salvation, we have been regenerated or made alive spiritually. Our minds have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. We have been drawn to Christ, and now we love God. Therefore, we live to serve God and obey His commandments. No longer do we serve Satan by following human autonomy and our own lusts. And this point is made very clear in places such as Romans chapter 6, which discuss how our union with Christ in His death and resurrection has killed off the old man, what we used to be, has broken the power of sin over us. Do we still have the flesh and the old man that we have to deal with? Yes, we do, unfortunately. And we're tempted and we have to pray every day for forgiveness. But the power's been broken. We don't live that lifestyle anymore. Well, as Christians, we must still fight the old man, the flesh, the sin in our members, and therefore we still sin and must confess our sins. Nevertheless, we no longer serve the devil or are part of his kingdom. We no longer live a life of habitual sin or rebellion against God. The conversion of a soul to God is Christ's victory over the devil and his power in that soul, restoring the soul to its liberty and recovering his own interest in it and dominion over it. We pick up our Christ daily and we follow Christ. We walk that narrow road. Yes, we still sin. Yes, we still struggle. Yes, we fight the old man in the flesh. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. He says, I hate what I do. But we're servants of Christ. We've been freed from sin. In 1 John 3, 7 to 10, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. But he who sins is of the devil. And that's present continuous tense. He who lives in a habitual practice of sin, it's his lifestyle, is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. That's, once again, habitually commit sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. <clears throat> Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brethren. What a great passage. And yes, this is the same epistle where he says, if you say that you don't commit sin, you call God a liar. John is not teaching we're sinless. John is teaching that our old life has been put away. It's not our, it's not our uh, habitual way of life. 
Are you still going to struggle with sin? Are you still going to sin? Yes, and you still have to confess your sins and pray to Christ every day. But it's not your habitual lifestyle. Those who do not believe in Jesus Christ continue in a life of sin and evil. This lifestyle identifies such people as children of the devil, for they follow his ways and belong to him covenantally. Christ came into this world to wage a great fight, a mighty battle. And our Lord's resurrection proves the Redeemer's conquest over Satan. Our Lord's teaching is crystal clear, and it follows a simple logical syllogism. The first premise is that only a total victory over the strong man allows a complete control over and plundering of the strong man's possessions. That makes sense. There's a guy and he's in a house. Let's say he's armed. Let's say he's a super muscular strong man. You're not going to go in there and take his stuff unless that guy is subdued, right? That's obvious. The second minor premise is that Jesus is stronger than Satan and he plunders Satan's goods at will. This inexorable logic leads to the conclusion Jesus achieved a total victory over Satan. Total victory. And we're told in Romans chapter 8, the whole earth is going to be redeemed. Every aspect of the fall, every effect of sin, every aspect of Satan's dominion will be forever banished from the universe. The foundation of that is the death and resurrection of Christ. It's progressively being carried out in history as God saves the elect. And it won't come to complete fruition until Christ returns again and we have a new redeemed heaven and earth and all those who serve Satan are cast into the lake of fire forever. The lake of fire that burns with brimstone where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Number three. Our Lord's conquest of Satan involves not simply saving individuals but extends to whole nations, cultures, and societies. And I'm just going to be very brief. This is the teaching of the many very clear, post-millennial victory passages we find in the prophets. Where whole nations are serving the Messiah, where kings and queens are bowing down and doing obeisance to the Son of God. Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 111. Many passages. And of course it's implied in the Great Commission. He says, disciple the nations. Nations, not simply individuals here and there. Our goal is not to leave the nations in the hands of the devil and have a few Christians here and there. Our goal is to keep preaching the gospel and planting churches and causing people and helping people look to Christ until the whole nation serves Christ. Whole nations are to be discipled with the whole word of God so that nations will abandon idolatry and or atheism and bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Demonic, evil, status law orders are to be replaced with Christian law orders. The wicked, pagan nations that comprised most of the old Roman Empire became Christian Europe. You, know, you see that beautiful building uh, in, in Rome, that the Pantheon, well, the building where they had the, the games? <laughs> What's it called? What's the, Colosseum. the Colosseum. They used to take Christians in there and cover them with pitch and put them on poles and set them on fire. They used to turn Christians over to the lions to be torn to shreds. That was entertainment. And watching criminals and people caught in warfare kill each other, that was entertainment in the Roman Empire. The old gods are gone. They were conquered by Christ. The pagan gods and the barbarities of heathen Roman Greece were replaced by Christendom. Even with all its defects and heresies, Christian Europe was light years ahead of the Greco-Roman paganism. All the great liberties we have, such as the rule of law and limited government, came from biblical Christianity, especially from Protestantism. Now our founders, who were inconsistent, admitted that the Constitution won't work unless people are Christians and lead moral lives. It won't work without that. When Christ conquered Satan at the cross and empty tomb, he conquered the old pagan gods that were physical expressions of the pagan world's worship of demonic beings. And the, the, the largest temple where the Pantheon is in Rome, which has the largest concrete dome, which supposedly has the apostles in it, those were all gods. They used to worship all the Pantheon of the gods. 
Note that as Christ's victory over the soul is seen in conversion, his, its victory over pagan culture is victory over Satan on a broad scale. The leaven of the gospel will start small and leaven the whole lump. The evidence of Christ's victory is seen in his taking away all the devil's armor. All the lies, propaganda, false worldviews, and satanic premises and promises are stripped away, leaving the devil powerless to influence real Christians in any serious sense. All the gifts of mind, body, estate, power, and one's interests that used to be dedicated to serving Satan and sin are now directed to serving Jesus and his kingdom. It's that simple. No neutrality. Second, Jesus Christ the stronger one brings his teaching to a personal application. In verse 23, verse 23 requires his audience and us to ask the all-important question, where do I stand? Where do I stand? Whose side am I on? Am I on Jesus' side? Am I on God's side? Or am I on Satan's side? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. We live in a nation and culture that exalts the idea of religious neutrality and pluralism. We are frequently told that all religions are essentially true and must be respected. They had the fires in Hawaii. Do you know that they had services yesterday? I think it was yesterday. Uh, pagan rituals connected with the idolatry of the original Hawaiians. And that's respected as, oh, how wonderful that is. That idolatry is just great. And that all paths lead to God. You probably heard that. All religions are true. They all lead to God. We should respect every religion. And after 9-11, George W. Bush, who's supposed to be a Christian, they had a religious service. And they had animists up there, and they had Buddhists and Hindus and every Indians and everything. Idolatry. Idolatry. It is generally believed by most Americans that if you are sincere in your beliefs, and you are basically a good person, you'll go to heaven. That's... You know, and you hear these, there'll be some big rock star who died, who spent his life fornicating and committing adultery and treating his wife like dirt and taking drugs. And he'll die and they'll, oh, he's up in heaven now, jamming with Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin. That's the view of a lot of people. But Jesus here explicitly rejects all such thinking as radically unbiblical. There are only two sides in this world, even though there are thousands of religions and philosophies. There's only two sides. There are those who believe in Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the sacred scriptures. He's fully God, fully man in one person. He was incarnated and born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem around 4 BC. He lived a perfect, impeccable, sinless life. These people also believe that this Jesus of Nazareth achieved a perfect salvation by dying on the cross as a curse for sin, rose from the dead after three days, ascended into heaven, and will return to judge the quick and the dead. These are Bible-believing, genuine Orthodox Christians. They take the Bible literally. They believe what it actually teaches. They don't try to explain it away. They don't call it a myth. They don't say it's full of errors. They believe it's in, in, inerrant, infallible, inspired. They gather together with Christ and join themselves to Orthodox Confession Christians or the visible church. They take a stand for Christ and confess him, even when that involves persecution and hostility from the world. One is either pro-Jesus, that is the biblically defined Christ, or against him. It's that simple. You're for Christ or not. One is either explicitly against him, like an atheist, or a Jew, or a Muslim, or one is implicitly against him, like a damnable heretic, or a mystic, or an agnostic. There is not, and can never be, a middle ground. And that's what pluralism wants to hold to, which our nation adheres to. Everything, everybody goes to heaven. All paths lead to God. Oh yeah, Charles Manchin, people like that, they'll, they'll go to hell, but most people are good. The multitudes who follow Jesus around because of his amazing miracles, they sought a carnal Messiah, according to their erroneous teachings of the Pharisees. Remember, there's a passage in the Gospels where they want to make him king, and he, walked, he snuck away from them because he knew what was in their hearts. When the time came to take a stand for Christ, 
the vast majority of the Jews yelled out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Kill this guy! Get him out of my face! Torture him! Put him to death! One must believe in everything the Bible says about Christ, or one is not a, sa a servant of the Savior, but a follower of Satan, whether you are aware of it or not. All these liberals, these modernists, who have homosexual and lesbian ministers, who talk about love. Oh, it's all about love. God, God wouldn't condemn anyone for fisting and perversion and gerbils. No, God's in favor of all that. No, they, they hate the Christ of the Bible. Jesus unites the lost sheep into one flock. There is one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One faith or system of doctrine. One baptism. One body of Christ, the invisible church. But Satan scatters the sheep for human autonomy. Man invented religions and philosophies and sin leads to a thousand different, into a thousand different directions. Satan divides. He brings rebellion and conflict. Look at Antifa. Look at the Democrats. Look at the homosexual rights movement. They're like wild dogs playing in their own excrement. The satanic philosophy of do your own thing, believe anything you want, create your own ethics and your own system of salvation, and so on, creates nothing but chaos and immorality. Today there are supposedly dozens of different forms of sexuality, depending on one's own preference. Jesus' warning about a lack of... Uh, warns us about a lack of neutrality. It is given to show the incredible spiritual danger of most of the Jews who listened to John the Baptist and then to Jesus himself, who were curious, yet who hung back and refused to commit themselves to him. They were amazed by Christ's miracles, and they had a sense that something profound and unusual was going on. But they hesitated because Jesus did not fit into their preconceived notions about the Messiah. And of course, Jesus was not accepted by the religious and political establishment, by the authorities. So they hung back. They were not willing to pick up their cross and follow Jesus. They were more concerned about the status quo and what people thought about them than about the gospel. Christ in his ministry made it perfectly clear that those who were unwilling to publicly confess him before men were not Christians, and would be rejected by God on the day of judgment. You don't confess me before men, and all that involves suffering, persecution, God's not going to confess you on the day of judgment as mine. Those who followed Jesus were excommunicated from the synagogues and often disowned by their families. In the history after our Lord's resurrection, read the book of Acts, the Christians would suffer violence and persecution at the hands of the Jews. Compromise and syncretism with the world always results in total apostasy. There is no neutrality. When the sons of God intermarried with the heathen daughters of men, the result was what? A world of violence and the worldwide flood that killed everybody, except for Noah and his family, eight persons all. Genesis 6, 1 and 2 and 13. When Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, incorporated autonomous worship ordinances and paganism into the worship of northern Israel for the sake of political power and the state control of religion, the result was apostasy and, and the curse and a curse on the northern kingdom, 1 Kings 12, 25 to 30. It was conquered and destroyed by Assyria in 722 B.C., Many, many thousands were slaughtered. Many, many thousands were sold into slavery. And they were taken away from the land. When the, when the southern kingdom compromised with paganism and corrupted the worship of Yahweh with heathenism, the result was judgment and 70 years of captivity. The policy of attempting to serve Yahweh while adopting a position of neutrality with false gods which are simply external manifestations of Satanism, never leads to godliness, success, or prosperity. It never works. So we've got to get this pragmatism, this idea of neutrality, out of our theology, out of our worship, 
out of our apologetics. The policy of making covenants with the world and its philosophy, whether the paganism of the Greeks, Romans, and the writers of the so-called Enlightenment, has been an unmitigated disaster for professing Christians in the United States. The Founding Fathers, follow, following apostates like John Locke or Rousseau, instituted a system of government that rejects the explicit establishment of the Christian religion. And we're not going to have an established church like the Presbyterians or the Episcopalians or, or the Lutherans. But they could have established, just simply said, well, we recognize Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and we uh, recognize Protestant Christianity, Bible-believing Protestant Christianity, as the established faith of our land. They didn't have to have a state church. They didn't have to have any of that. But they could have put it in their constitution. We recognize Jesus Christ as Lord. We recognize Jesus Christ as Savior. We recognize the Bible as the Word of God. All of our laws must be based on the Word of God. They must be based on God's moral law. They could have done that. And they didn't. And thus there are no religious testos for office or in order to vote or to serve on juries. Consequently, atheists, Hindus, Muslims, Jews, Mormons, and Satan worshippers can vote and hold office. The nation was functioning to a large degree under the Christian world and life view. And things functioned pretty good for quite a while. And men gave lip service to the Bible by having prayer and chaplains and so on in the Congress and in the military. But the explicit confession of Christ as Lord and Savior is missing. It's not there. And they admitted read my book on covenanting, they admitted that if the people want an atheist as leader, they'll get an atheist. The real God of the American system is we the people, irrespective of how evil and foolish their ideas become. A constitutional republic, a biblical constitutional republic, has the rule of law, God's law, that can't be changed where we have this positivistic law where the Supreme Court decides that uh, sodomite perverts are fine. No, the rule of law, God's law. Raw democracy leads to destruction and tyranny. You need a constitutional republic, and that can only be founded on the Bible and the rule of law. The result of seeking neutrality with Satan and idolatry has resulted in the Bible and biblical Christianity being totally excluded from every sphere of our civil government. Our courts, our schools, our Congress, our Senate, our Supreme Court. And they even ask, the Democrats even ask people who come up for the Supreme Court, eh, I heard you're a Roman Catholic. You don't take that stuff seriously, do you? You don't believe that stuff about the Bible. The foundation of our system is now secular humanism and positivistic law. That is, ethics or morals are whatever the political elites and the heathen atheistic judges say they are. And the result is a satanic law order, sodomite rights, sodomite marriage, no-fault divorce, the legalization of theft under a certain, uh, under the, in the name of equity. San Francisco, if you steal, I forget what it is, $980, they won't even arrest you. State theft and redistribution on a massive scale, which is simply buying votes. The legalization and praise of the transgender perversion, including sexual mutilization uh, of children and abortion on demand. There is no neutrality. There is no neutrality. If you're not a Christian, if you haven't bowed the knee to Christ, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, as he's revealed in the scripture that he lived a sinless life, that he died in the cross as atoning sacrifice for sin and guilt, that he took the curse for you. If you don't believe that, if you don't believe that he was in the grave for three days and that he rose from the dead literally, bodily out of the grave, and that he's coming back again, you're doomed. And you're a servant of Satan. And your life has no meaning. And you're going to end up in the trash heap of history in the lake of fire with the demons and the devil where you belong. So I say, now's the time to bow the knee to Christ. Now we'll have to continue this next week and... Lord willing, and we're going to look at what he says at the end, which is extremely important. How you have a half-hearted society or a half-hearted Christian that's not really a Christian, and they may reform their lives for a time. But uh, if you reject that, if you reject Christ, you're going to end up way, way worse than you were. And we see that 
in all the post-Christian societies, Europe and America and Canada and so forth. It's, it's extremely disheartening to look at our nation today, how wicked it is, how evil it is, how evil our politicians are. When the Democrats started doing all this crazy transgender stuff, I thought, well, the Americans are going to wake up and they're going to lose mass. No, they keep voting for them. They don't care. They don't care if you're a total sex pervert. They don't care if you lie. Everything you say is a total lie. They don't care. They're blind. They belong to Satan. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the wisdom of your dear son, Jesus Christ, and his teachings. Lord, we ask you, we beg you, to bend our hearts to obey your son. Cause us to love him more and more. Cause us to put him first in everything. Cause us to see the truth and then live in terms of it so that we could please your dear son, Jesus Christ, so that we could live consistently with your holy word in Jesus' name.